Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we're reprising our most popular podcast from last year with one of our most frequent guests. I'm here today with Jordan Christmas. And Jordan, how are you? I'm doing good. Uh, Hard to believe we're almost to the all-star break already. Seems like this season just started yesterday, but I'm fired up. I have some fired up hot takes. Well, not really hot takes, but I'm fired up and ready to go. Medium hot takes? Yeah, lukewarm to medium hot takes and maybe a fiery rant. We'll see. Well, that's good enough. And speaking of almost to the all-star break, when I say we're reprising our most popular podcast, I'm talking about the mid-season awards podcast. And I wanted to start with something that isn't exactly a mid-season award, but is pretty relevant with the all-star starters being announced tomorrow as the time we record this podcast. So I just wanted to quickly run down the all-star starters with you and who the current leaders are and who we think the leaders should be. So as of right now, the top three vote getters in the front court for the Eastern Conference, so the starting front court, would be LeBron James, Giannis Adenakumpo, and Joel Embiid. The guards would be Kyrie Irving and DeMar DeRozan. Now there is the media vote and the player vote to be considered in addition to the fan returns. But that would be the starting lineup for the East All-Star team if it just went by fan vote. And then moving on to the West, the front court would be Kevin Durant, Anthony Davis, and Draymond Green. And the starting back court would be Steph Curry and James Harden. I think that those starting lineups are a pretty good representation of who the starting lineups should probably be in the all-star game. But what are your thoughts on those returns? Yeah, it's pretty much the starters that I have. I have Irving, DeRozan, LeBron, Greek Freak, and Joel Embiid as the starters. Um, And yeah, Curry, Harden, Durant, Anthony Davis. The one person I would sub out, though, is DeMarcus Cousins, because even though the Pelicans defense does take a nosedive kind of when Cousins is on the court versus when he's off the court, he is still a huge part of what they've done. They are both of them have kind of kept this really poorly put together roster afloat. And I really thought the Pelicans would be a terrible team this year. And they're a borderline playoff team. They have figured out how to work together. And it's really just fun seeing I mean, you're a Sacramento fan and I've I've feel like I've watched my fair share of Sacramento games, but I don't think I've ever seen DeMarcus Cousins bring the ball up and operate from the top of the circle this much as he did in Sacramento. I don't know what you think, but I really think DeMarcus Cousins has really been just a special offensive player at the center position this year. So I'd probably go with Boogie over Draymond. DeMarcus started to do that a lot more his last two years in Sacramento. Right. So it's not entirely new, but he certainly has been handling a lot of responsibility in New Orleans, even with another star player alongside him in Anthony Davis. I have a bit of a hard time having two of the three starting front court players come from a team that's currently 23 and 20. But on the other hand, I think that without those two guys, the Pelicans would probably be, if not the worst team in basketball, then certainly in the bottom three. So I have a little bit of an easier time with it, but I don't really have as much of a problem with Draymond starting over DeMarcus Cousins, just because if I had to pick one of the two of them between Cousins and Davis, I'd probably go with Davis due to defensive impact. And I think it makes a lot more sense to have two of the three starting front court players come from the team that's leading the NBA right now, as opposed to a team that's barely in the playoff picture. That's fair. Yeah. Um, And also, I want you to, um, I guess, for really quick before we move on to the other things, I want you to tell me if I'm being irrational or maybe coming off as too homery because I try to keep it objective. But, you know, based on who I am as a person, it's sometimes it can be hard to separate the fan me from the objective me. And I love basketball as a whole. It's my favorite sport. So with that said, I just want to know why. Why does the national media have to, um, why can't they keep it consistent? The last few days I have been reading Kevin O'Connor, listening to Bill Simmons and Zach Lowe's podcast on picking all-star teams. And I've been looking at other national writers on Twitter, giving out their 
NBA, they have a, you know, a ballot to vote for the All-Star game and they give out their starters and they have Al Horford over Joel Embiid. Now, maybe I'm overreacting, but I think that is egregious. I talked about it with you on the podcast before. I think Joel Embiid is the best center in basketball. With all due respect to DeMarcus Cousins, I've, we're talking about a player who does it on both ends of the floor. I think Joel Embiid is the best center in basketball. And I just want to know how they keep rolling out this trope of games played as the reason that they have Horford over Embiid. The Celtics have played five more games than the 76ers have played. Joel Embiid has only missed nine games. He's actually played a game he's actually played one more game than Steph Curry has as of right now. Now and I did not think we'd be saying that at this point in the season before the season started, but that's where we are. And Look, Steph should start, but if we're talking about being consistent and using this whole, oh, well, he didn't play enough games argument, it seems really ridiculous to me that that Al Horford should be starting when Joel Embiid is overall the better player. Al Horford is a better passer, but Joel Embiid transforms a defense better than Al Horford. Not only that, the Sixers roster is way more inferior than the Celtics roster, which makes Joel Embiid's on and off numbers all that more impressive. I know there could be a lot of noise with on and off numbers, but the fact that he makes them the best defense in basketball when he's on versus the 25th last time I checked when he's off versus Al Horford when the Celtics are completely fine when he doesn't play. They're 4-0 this year when he doesn't play. And we're just going to use this games played argument as a reason that Al Horford should start over Joel Embiid. It's it's ridiculous to me, quite frankly. Uh, Joel Embiid is the better. He has shoulders more of an offensive load. He is the best he he transforms the defense like i said earlier he's the better rim protector the better rebounder if you look at the advanced numbers joel Embiid is better better in most of those categories also i just don't understand why it seems like the first two years that joel Embiid missed has like put a stain on how on the national perception of joel Embiid, and i just don't get it so I personally think that Al Horford is an incredibly underrated player. I do too. But that being said, Joel Embiid should definitely start over Al Horford. And I think part of the problem is something that you brought up earlier, which is the Sixers are currently the only team in the NBA that has played less than half of their season. They've only played 40 out of 82 games. Every other team has played 42 or more. And I think that sort of colors the perception as well when – you're looking at a team like the Celtics that's played 45 games and you're like, well, Joel Embiid's only played two thirds of the season when in reality he's played more than three quarters of his team's games. But I think the other aspect of it is that it is still difficult to erase the stain of Joel Embiid's first two years in the league. And I think if he can put together another season or two like this one where he plays most of the team's games and his minutes restriction has basically been eliminated he's averaging over 31 minutes a game this year as opposed to last year where he was basically restricted to 25 minutes or under I think the injury perception still exists a little bit but I don't think that should knock him out of the starting lineup in the all-star game when he's been so transformative for the Sixers but let's move on from the all-star discussion and into the MVP discussion so we both had the same two players at the top of our ballot in the same order, which I think is an order that is falling a little more out of favor as one of these players has missed a significant amount of time. So I had James Harden as my number one choice for MVP and LeBron James as number two. Now that might shift if James Harden misses more than the games he's missed so far with injury, but Part of the reason that I didn't think James Harden would have a shot at MVP this year is because I thought that with Chris Paul in the fold, Harden would just have a smaller role on offense and wouldn't be able to put up the kind of numbers that would be needed for an MVP candidate. And instead, he is leading the league in scoring, averaging over (laughs) 32 points a game. He's also averaging 9.1 assists per game, even with Chris Paul in the fold. The Rockets are 30 and 12 overall but they are four and three without James Harden. And I think that says a lot about 
just how impactful Harden is. And the fact that Chris Paul has basically accepted a secondary role is another indicator of just how incredible James Harden has been. And I thought James Harden should have won MVP last year. Agreed. And this year, I think that choice is looking even better. Yeah, and also, I know there's the, there's this thing we do with great players like LeBron, who I think is the second greatest player of all time. Certainly, people should have him in the top three. It, I think it's basketball malpractice if you don't at this point in his career. But we do this thing with these great players where we like to say whenever like someone like LeBron who's having a career year in his 15th year and because he's LeBron and clearly the best player in the world that that somehow means he should I it's hard to explain but there is a crowd there is a crowd where it was like LeBron James is the MVP and it's not even close well it's like well no James Harden there is a complete legitimate argument for James Harden like the Rockets are second in offensive rating and I looked this up. Fought. People want to say, well, Chris Paul is a big part of this team also. Well, I looked at their lineups, the lineups that they've played over 50 minutes. James Harden is in five of the most efficient lineups that the Rockets have played over 50 minutes. And only one of them has James Harden and Chris Paul in the starting lineup. And he just does so much for the Rockets offense. Like you said, lead, lead, leading the league in scoring, averaging nine assists a game. He, James Harden is just—he's one of the best two guards that I've ever seen in my life. He's just so crafty with the basketball. He's still a master at getting to the free throw line. He should definitely still be the MVP at this point. Hopefully, this hamstring injury doesn't linger too long because at this point you do have to start. That's when the game's argument does matter with awards, where you have to start pegging him down. But it seems like he's going to be returning this Thursday. At the time of this recording, based on stuff that I've read, it seems like he's going to be returning uh, this week. So um, hopefully he doesn't miss any more time. But like like you said, I thought Harden should have won last year. I didn't think the difference between Westbrook and Harden was one and a half rebound. Harden didn't average one and a half more rebounds. I thought that was just an insanity. But yeah, Harden, I think Harden is the MVP right now. And LeBron is you know, obviously still second, but he, I'm telling you, we do this thing with these great players where we kind of, we can't critique them, even though we know that they're still great. And it's okay to knock down LeBron, LeBron down the MVP ranking. Yes, I know his roster, the roster around him isn't as complete as it was in years past. And he has to do everything, but the, the, the Cavaliers are in, are right above the Sacramento Kings in terms of defensive rating. And that's not a place where you want to be. And you got to knock him for that. If, if you want to be in the MVP conversation, this is also the first year of LeBron's career where his team is actually slightly better with him off the court than on the court. And I think that speaks to what we were talking about earlier with there being some noise in those on-off numbers. I think part of it as well is that this is the first year, I think really of LeBron's career where his bench has been good as opposed to abysmal, like pretty much every other bench unit he's ever played with. Yep. That being said, he's in his 15th season. He's 33 years old. He's averaging 27, eight rebounds and almost nine assists per game. And it's just incredible that he's played every single game this year on top of that. And his ability to avoid major injury is somehow one of the freakiest things about someone who's been one of the freakiest players in the league since he entered. And someone who, as you said, is pretty close to indisputably one of the three best players of all time. I think it would be fine if LeBron James won the MVP this year over James Harden. I would be a bit upset for James just because... He's come close so many times. <laughs> yeah. He's been second three times, and honestly, I think he should have won two of those times. But LeBron also should have won basically every MVP from 2007 till now. Barring Steph Curry's ridiculous MVP year, I think you could make a case that LeBron should have won every single other award. And ultimately, if you're going to give it to LeBron because he plays every single game and the Cavaliers would probably fall apart without him despite those on-off-court numbers, 
I wouldn't be too upset if LeBron wanted, because ultimately if you're picking between James Harden and LeBron James, you're picking between two guys who have been snubbed of at least a couple of MVP awards. Yeah. And we kind of have uh, the third spot is interesting. So I've had trouble with this because I love Steph Curry and, you know, behind Allen Iverson, he's my favorite player to watch ever. And here's where the games argument does, you know, matter, I guess, even though you, so you picked Steph Curry third. I wanted to, it was between Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and Jimmy Butler was kind of an honorable mention for me, but I had trouble with this. I just went with Kevin Durant because he has played more games than Steph Curry. And when Steph Curry was out for that stretch with the ankle injury, Durant was you know, the main guy, obviously on the team. And, you know, it's, it's funny every time, every time I see this Warriors team, it's like, oh, one MVP goes down. We have another top three player to, (laughs) to, you know, shoulder the load. And he averaged or 29 points a game, uh, five and a half assists, eight rebounds and almost three blocks a game and shooting on 46, 38 and 92 shooting splits. And, if just for that, I guess I gave Durant the slight edge over Steph Curry, but I completely and totally understand why people would have Steph Curry third. And I guess I have a question for you after uh, we talk about MVPs. But uh, yeah, I I guess I just went with Durant just based on games played. But if Steph plays like 65 games, um, he's the Warriors' most important player. And you can take talent in a vacuum and say Kevin Durant is better, but I think Steph Curry is actually the best player on this team. But I completely understand why people would have Steph there. I just went with Kevin Durant right now because of more games. So here's why I went with Steph Curry over Kevin Durant. The games played argument is important, and it's hard to deny that Kevin Durant is also an incredibly impactful player. But with Steph Curry in the lineup, The Warriors are shooting just a hair above 40% from three-point range, which is the best mark in the league by a wide margin. But during the time that Steph Curry missed, the Warriors were 29th in three-point shooting percentage, despite the fact that Kevin Durant was there and Klay Thompson was there. And the impact that Steph Curry has on a defense every single time he crosses half-court It's crazy. (laughs) Is almost impossible to measure, but those on-off numbers with three-point percentage kind of tells the tale of that a little bit as well. And the Warriors have the league's best offensive rating at 113.6. With Steph Curry on the floor, their offensive rating is 120.8 points per 100 possessions. With him off the floor, it's 107.1 which would be just barely in the top 10 league-wide. The impact that Steph Curry has on the Warriors is absolutely absurd. And he's not a great defender. I'm not even sure he's an average defender, but he isn't a terrible defender. I can make the case he's above average, but that's a different podcast for a different day. (laughs) But again, the point being, he's not terrible. Yeah. And given his offensive impact, he would need to be really, really awful on the defense end for him not to be an immensely valuable player. So before we move on to the defensive player of the year, I just wanted to go through what was the question you had for me? Okay. So I tweeted this the other night. I I have consistently thought since basically since Steve Kerr took over that, well, in 2014-15, Steph Curry was top five. But after that, I think he's been a top three player. I know last year he had a quote unquote uh, off year, even though that's that for an off year for Steph Curry would be an all time great season for anybody. But do you think have you ever seen a top three player that doesn't get the proper amount of respect that a top three player should get? Because there seems to still be this, I don't know what it is. There still seems to be this pushback that Steph Curry is somehow not better than, you know, Russell Westbrook, which is insane to me, or like a James Harden in the 2015, 16 season, the, during the regular season, at least, I thought he was the best player on the planet and he played like it. And I stand by that. I mean, 
obviously people would start their franchise around LeBron, but I thought that regular season he was the best player in the world. But I just want to have you, can you think of any time since you followed basketball that a top three player didn't garner the amount of respect that a top three player should? And why is that? I think that the only other example I can think of is Chris Paul back in his Hornets days. And I think that's just because he managed to take an absolutely garbage team to average. And the fact that he didn't ever lead them to the Western Conference Finals, oh, he just can't lead a team in the playoffs. Well, I mean, look at the garbage he had around him other than David West. But I think the thing with Steph Curry is that people don't see the kind of explosive athleticism that they expect from some of the best players in the NBA. But Steph has a different kind of athleticism, which is the most insane level of body control that I think I've seen in any athlete in any sport. And there's a reason that no one has been able to duplicate his three-point stroke, first of all, his three-point accuracy, second of all, and the fact that he's one of the most efficient players in the league near the rim, despite being 6'3 and maybe 190 pounds. But I think the fact that he doesn't have the explosive dunks of Russell Westbrook or the ridiculous end-to-end speed of LeBron or John Wall makes people think less about him as a spectacular player because his athleticism, which is in his sort of proprioception, is a lot harder to see and therefore a lot harder to appreciate. Yeah, that, yeah, I guess you're right, but uh, it's just it the the I still see like the you know oh he's just a shooter and it's like well first of all if he's just a shooter well then you know keep doing what's working but that's just not true like you said the the finishing around the rim I mean those numbers match up with centers which all they do is shoot around the basket <laughs> and then. You know, the defense stuff, I mean, he's not hes not a bad defender. I think he's above average personally. I mean, one-on-one, we can debate we could debate that. Obviously, you don't want him guarding in isolation one-on-one, but I think he's a fine defender at least. We, I guess we, every, everybody who follows basketball can agree on that, that he's a fine defender. But he just, he is, he's like Shaq in regards to how coach's game plan around him like Shaq obviously did it from the paint but like like you said as soon as Steph crosses half court defenses antennas are up you just have to you have to guard him like five feet past the three-point line and on and off numbers just can't advance metrics just can't calculate that properly that's it's, it's still crazy to me how underrated he is all right moving on to defensive player of the year And we actually have the same three players here, but we have them in a different order. Both of us have Al Horford in third place, so we'll get to him in a minute. But you had Joel Embiid first and Draymond Green second. I had it the other way around, Draymond first and Joel Embiid second. A lot of people have been talking about Kevin Durant for Defensive Player of the Year, and I just don't see that at all. I think that... Kevin Durant has been able to goose his block numbers because he has Draymond Green, and thus Kevin can block hunt a little bit while Draymond actually cleans up those mistakes if Kevin gets a little bit over-eager. And the other important thing is that the Warriors have a defensive rating of 102.9 points allowed per 100 possessions, but their defense is actually better with Kevin Durant off the court. In fact, the Warriors have a better defensive rating with Kevin Durant off the court than with any other player on the Warriors. Their defensive rating with Kevin Durant on the bench is 100.1. But on the other hand, Draymond Green has the second worst off-court defensive rating with an 105. Basically, the Warriors defend worse with Draymond off the court than any other player on the team besides Klay Thompson And Draymond anchors that defense both in sort of the traditional sense and in the more mental sense of him calling out plays, him directing guys where to go. And I just don't buy the argument that Kevin Durant has had more of a defensive impact than Draymond Green. Even if Draymond might be having a little bit of a down year by his standards, he's still, I think, the best defensive player in the league. Yeah, um, like you 
Oh, well, first of all, you can you could just tell watching games that Kevin Durant is <laughs> hunting blocks down a little bit, you know, which is fine. I mean, this is with that said, Kevin Durant has immensely improved, I guess, as a defensive player since his OKC days. But it's all because Draymond Green is probably one of the smartest defenders I've ever watched. Um but the reason I, I still have Joel Embiid first from our last podcast, just because, like I mentioned earlier, he has been able to transform a roster who really, well, first of all, it's been injured. And not only that, the guard and wing depth has been bad, uh, aside from Robert Covington, who has taken a, a tad of a step back uh, defensively, but he's still really, he's still really, really good. Um I just think Joel Embiid's ability to just transform the players around him and it would, or I guess transform the team despite the players around him has been incredible. Um, Looking at his on off court numbers, the Sixers have a 100.2 defensive rating when he's on the court and a 106.5 when he's off the court. And just that massive gap between being a top five defense and a bottom third defense in the league is just real is really just incredible even when Joel Embiid had a slow start to the year the Sixers defense was still elite when he was on the court Draymond had a slow year to start I and he's kind of come on I didn't even have a I I don't think I had Draymond on my defensive player of the year list when we did our quarter season award podcast but uh, he is kind of, you know, rounded back into form and that's he's he's second to me. But I wouldn't be surprised by the end of the year that Draymond wins the thing. Um, but I'm just talking about overall impact to their team and being able to transform the roster around him despite the players that they have. The Sixers really only have like one and a half guards and wings that are effective in the in the rotation off the bench and he's his ability to just protect the rim and call out defensive plays despite only playing basketball seven years is still one of the craziest things I've seen. So I, I still have Joel Embiid first, but Draymond could probably catch him by the end of the year. On the rim protection thing, opponents shoot 13.5% worse from the floor than league average when being defended by Joel Embiid near the rim, which is just (laughs) an impossible stat to wrap my mind around, where league average near the rim is above 60%, but whenever Joel Embiid's near the rim, all of a sudden their field goal percentage dips below 50%. But let's move on to the guy that we both have third on our list, which is Al Horford. The Celtics still have the best defensive rating in basketball, even though... They haven't been as ridiculous on that end as they were to start the year. But put it this way, anyone who thinks that Kyrie Irving is the most important player on the Celtics, I urge you to watch Kyrie Irving attempt to play defense. And granted, he's a lot better on that end this year than he ever was in Cleveland, probably because he's at least pretending to try some of the time in Boston. But the beginning and end of why the Celtics defense is so successful is Al Horford. And he's not a traditional defensive center. He's not a rim protector in that sense, but he covers the pick and roll as a big man better than pretty much anyone in the league besides arguably Draymond Green. And ultimately, the Celtics are playing Kyrie Irving and a bunch of young guys, yet they're still the best defense in the league. And I think Al Horford is a huge part of the reason why. And his on his on off numbers for defensive rating don't exactly, I guess, um, match what we're saying. But it's because also there's all types of defensive talent around him. Bunch of six 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 seven uh, wings that have long wingspans. But Al Horford, you could just—he's the captain of that defense. He's able to put the guys in the right position, and also we forget that he basically spends 20 minutes, 25 minutes a game um, playing with Aaron Baines at center. So he's, he's most effective, obviously, when he is in the small ball five lineups where his you know ability to cover the pick and roll and being able to switch is more effective. So he's not, like you said, he's not the traditional uh, type of rim protecting center. Um, but even, but even then um, 
in today's league where it's more spread out and more guards are on the court in smaller lineups, having somebody like Al Horford who can who is still bigger than a lot of players on the court in those crunch time smaller lineups is still able to protect the rim at least a little bit and being able to switch without getting burned defensively is just really valuable. And it's kind of also like a best defender on the best defensive team type of thing is the reason I also have him third. Um, he's been good. And like I said, Al Horford is a underrated player. He has been for a while, but, uh, but, uh, I still have Embiid and Draymond ahead of him. Moving on to the all-NBA teams, and both Jordan and I have the same first team at the moment. And since we've already talked about four of those five players, I want to key in on the fifth guy. So we both have the two guards as Steph Curry and James Harden. I think it would be pretty difficult to argue for anybody else. We both have LeBron James as one of the forwards and Joel Embiid as the center. But the fifth guy we have is the Greek freak, Giannis Adetokounmpo. And somehow, after winning most improved player and making second team all NBA last year, Giannis has managed to take yet another leap. He's averaging almost 30 points a game, 10 rebounds a game, and almost five assists per game, while being by far the most valuable member of the Milwaukee Bucks who are 23 and 20, but on the other hand would probably be 33 and 10 if anyone besides Jason Kidd was their coach. Oh my God. (laughs) So with that in mind, I mean, I talked about this on the recent Milwaukee Bucks podcast we did, but I think it's just a matter of when, not if, Giannis wins his first MVP award at this point. I mean, he's managed to improve yet again after, again, he made second team All-NBA last year, and he's still only 23 years old. It's going to be one of the all-time like great blunders if Jason Kidd is somehow still the coach and he's just wasting away these Giannis seasons. Um, because... It, this team should be this team should be better and it some of the reasonings and the explanations from Jason Kidd just make my head want to explode but despite all that Giannis is like you said he's taking another leap people know that he can't shoot and he is still averaging 28 points a game and scoring the majority all, almost all of his scoring has come from the paint and free throws obviously but he can't shoot and he's still one of the five best players in the league and he's only 23 years old that <laughs> I keep going back to it but that conversation that we had on the preseason podcast where it was like who would you choose between uh Giannis or Carl Anthony Towns uh, and I was kind of I was kind of leaning 55 45 Giannis I mean, it's complete Giannis. Like he is, he's incredible. And I just hope the Bucks realize that they need to find a viable coach to be able to not only unlock Giannis, but this roster. This roster is too talented for it to be twenty three and twenty at the time of this recording. It, it's still mind boggling. But Giannis is Giannis is great. Next up, the second team, where once again we agree on the full team, which I'm not sure that says more about us podcasting together or about how the league has gone this season, but I think that's a topic for another time. Our guards were DeMar DeRozan and Jimmy Butler. Our forwards were Kevin Durant and Anthony Davis, and our center was DeMarcus Cousins. And I wanted to start by talking about the guards. Jimmy Butler, after a pretty rough first couple of weeks, has become the unquestioned leader of this Timberwolves squad who at the time of this recording are just a game behind the Spurs in third. And that's another ridiculous thing we'll get into later. But Jimmy Butler has been incredible once again. DeMar DeRozan is someone that I thought has been really overrated the past couple of years. But this year, despite the fact that his statistical profile looks pretty similar, I think he's actually been much, much better than he's ever been before. And the main reason for that is that he's made such an improvement as a passer. He used to be an isolation scorer type who didn't really involve his teammates much. And 
this year, whether it's due to the change in Toronto's offensive style or if DeMar really just has taken that much of a leap as a passer, it's been night and day in terms of his ability to not only score his own buckets, but to get his teammates involved. The Toronto Raptors have been one of my favorite teams to watch this year. The mix of young guys and coming off the bench, you know, with Van Fleet, DeLon Wright, Jakob Pertl, Pascal Siakam has taken a leap as a player. And DeMar DeRozan, he look, he's... I get where people are coming from when they say DeMar DeRozan was kind of overrated. The on and off numbers for the Raptors favored more towards Kyle Lowry. And I get that he was definitely the Raptors best player, but there is a compelling case this year that DeMar DeRozan, it could be the best player for the Raptors. And like you said, he improved his passing, but he's also shooting um, for the month of December or since uh, I think mid December, he's been shooting um, uh, over 45% from three. That's obviously not going to sustain itself, but he's been more willing to shoot the three ball this year. He's shooting 35% from three overall on the year, but the Raptors are more willing to uh, run, you know, pick and roll through DeMar DeRozan. He's become such a, he's become such an improved passer and he's improved every summer. So I, while I get where people were coming from, um, it might have been too much of an overcorrection because people, I think people underestimated the fact that DeMar improved his game every year and his renaissance, I guess, if you could call it a renaissance, so to speak, um, has been really fun. And by the way, props to Dwayne Casey for, you know, being willing to change his offensive philosophy. That's stuff that the great coaches do like Greg Popovich was willingly changed um, the style, his style of play numerous times. Steve Kerr changed the style of the play for the Warriors. When he took over coaches have to be willing to change their style of play. And Casey has done that. So since we've already talked about Durant boogie and the brow pretty extensively earlier in the podcast, I wanted to move on to the third team where We had the same guards. We both had Kyrie Irving and Victor Oladipo, who has been, I think, the biggest surprise of this season, just how well he's been playing in Indiana. And granted, there is an element to which he clearly could have done more last year had he not been playing in a Russell Westbrook first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth offense. But on the other hand, he did kind of have his own team in Orlando and was nowhere near as good as he's been in Indiana. Granted, some of that might just be because the Orlando Magic are probably the second saddest franchise in the NBA right now, uh, just ahead of the Sacramento Kings. But it has been incredible to see what Oladipo's done with his own team. Kyrie also has his own team for the first time, but he hasn't been all that dramatically different from the player that he was in Cleveland. That being said, he was a pretty excellent offensive player in Cleveland, and he's still a pretty excellent offensive player in Boston. Now, the forwards were where we disagreed. We both had Chris Stapps Porzingis as one of our forwards. He's definitely fallen off in recent weeks, but he's still averaging 23.5 points a game and is the clear focal point for a Knicks team that has been around the playoff conversation in the East, at least for most of the season, barring their recent nosedive. But you had Al Horford as your second forward, and I had Paul George. I think that Al Horford was probably the person that I had the biggest debate about putting on the team. I ended up deciding on Nikola Jokic as my center over Horford, I sort of thought of Horford as more of a center than a forward, but I think I still would have had Paul George over Horford for that final forward spot anyway. Paul George has been having a down year on the offensive end, but he has been an absolute monster defensively, and ultimately that's been what's been driving this Thunder team to not being worse than they have been. Their offense has really not come together at all, but... They're the fifth seed almost entirely on the strength of their defense. And the Paul George-Andre Roberson tandem has been crucial to them being able to stay in the playoff hunt with that defense. Well, I was about to ask you, what do you think about the Thunder's defense kind of 
it's under the radar taking a nosedive since Roberson's been out because it seems like I know Paul George has been spectacular on def- defensively. Don't get me wrong. Leading uh, top five in steals and leading the league in deflections last I checked. But it seems like Roberson is has been, he's Roberson for as putrid of an offensive player as he is, has been an absolute monster himself defensively. So I'm wondering what you think about that correlation and not that it should knock Paul George or anything, but it, it's in, it's interesting that you said that he is the driving force behind that Thunder's de- Thunder defense because I think you can make a case for Roberson. I think you definitely could make a case for Roberson. I think the problem with that is that Paul George hasn't really missed much time. He's only missed three games all year. And I think if it were Paul George that were on the sideline instead of Roberson, the defense would have taken a similar nosedive but would be taking even more of a nosedive on the offensive end where – George is still the second leading scorer, 20 and a half points per game, shooting 43% from deep. It's tough to decide between who's the better defender between Roberson and Paul George, but they would both be on one of the all defensive teams if the season ended today. And I think that the defense have taken a nosedive without Roberson out because now they only have one spectacular wing defender as opposed to having probably the best wing defensive tandem in the league. Okay, I guess that's fair. I just put Al Horford on here because he is in the running for defensive player of the year for me. And I think while Kyrie has certainly gotten his shots on off on the offensive end in different ways, I know his profile, his stats look similar. But if you look at like his dribble handoff threes and how, he sh- and how he's getting his three-point shots now, it's... it's it's different, but Al Horford, I think, is pretty close to Kyrie on the offensive end also just because of his passing and his ability to stretch the floor and pull defenders out. I think Al Horford has played a huge, huge part it, despite my rant earlier and my rant that's coming on hash, on the Hashtag Sixers podcast about Joel Embiid versus Al Horford. I think Al Horford has been a really just a key cog in the Celtics um, having the second best record in the NBA behind the Warriors and first in the East. So I, that's why it's kind of the winning card, I guess, that I pulled and Al Horford's importance to it. And then I put Nikola Jokic as the center because while it looks like he's having a down year, he has been the driving force behind the Nuggets, you know, competing for a playoff spot and really doing so without Paul Millsap. I don't think the Nuggets expected Paul Millsap to have an injury that would take him out for three months. But um, I just wish, I wish Jokic was a little bit more consistent. He, it seems like he has one dominant game and then the next game he comes out flat, but just his overall impact, even when he's not scoring or, you know, piling up the assist, his overall just impact is still really visible for the Nuggets. All right, let's move on to the all rookie first team. And I kind of had this in order because there aren't positions on the all-rookie team. I sort of listed this as the top five rookies in my mind in the Rookie of the Year race. Number one, I still have Ben Simmons, even though he had a pretty down month of December. He's still been absolutely spectacular. Number two, gaining ground pretty quickly in my mind, Donovan Mitchell, who somehow went from being the 13th overall pick to being the engine of the Utah Jazz offense, which on the one hand, Utah hasn't exactly been an offensive force, but on the other hand, anytime a 21-year-old rookie is clearly the best player on your team, and granted that's with Rudy Gobert out for a lot of the year, but anytime a 21-year-old rookie is the best player on your team, you got to give props to that guy. Number three, I have Jason Tatum, who has been incredible for the team that's leading the Eastern Conference. And you don't get to play that many minutes as a rookie for that good of a team unless you're really good. And Tatum's shooting has been shocking, especially given that he only shot 34% from deep in college. But until he stops hitting them, you kind of have to assume that he's a 40-plus percent three-point shooter and an incredibly gifted offensive creator who's nowhere near as bad on the defensive end as I thought he would be. Number four, I have Kyle Kuzma, who kind of similarly to Donovan Mitchell, 
arguably the biggest surprise of the rookie class, Kuzma being taken 27th and being, I think, the Lakers' best player this year, honestly. And then fifth, this was tough. I went with Dennis Smith Jr., but Larry Markkinen has a really good case for that last spot, and so does Lonzo. But Dennis Smith has really picked it up the past few weeks, and even though he had a rough start to the season shooting-wise, he's getting a lot better on that end as well. And he's also playing a bigger role than any of these guys besides Laurie and Lonzo. So we don't have enough time to get into why I have Kyle Kuzma flipped to third and Jason Tatum fourth. I think it's neck and neck. I wouldn't have, I don't have a beef with you having Jason Tatum over him. Both have been great. I have Laurie Market in there because he's, well, on a personal note, he's been fun to watch. I thought he was not worth the seventh pick in the draft. I thought he rebounded like a guard. I thought he was terrible defensively in college. And I get, look, college players are typically bad defensively, but I thought he could get pushed around a lot, especially on the glass. And I thought he was slow laterally, but it seems like he's, you know, decent for a rookie defensively. And, um, He's averaging, you know, 15 points a game and he's not just, you know, a shooter. He has like kind of a little bit of a post game. He can, you know, uh, he could get a pass on a kickout and, you know, dribble and drive to the basket on a kickout. He had a really insane dunk whenever uh, the Bulls played the Knicks uh, last week. He, he, you know, sent. <laughs> he pretty much sent Ennis Cantor to the shadow realm on a dunk. That was just really nasty. Um but marketing has been a pre- pleasant surprise for me. I think he's going, I think his offensive ceiling, especially as a power forward slash center, is going to be, I think it's really high. And if you look at uh, his numbers compared to Porzingis's uh, rookie year, it's almost kind of scary similar. Now, marketing doesn't have the, you know, seven, three long, long wingspan profile that position. Porzingis does, but when you're talking about shooting the ball and changing, being a changing offensive cog from a power forward slash, you know, stretch five position, I think Laurie Markkinen has been a just a really pleasant surprise, and the Bulls have been fun to watch. I I've been uh, on a quick side note, I've been a Chris Dunn um, fan truther. I will die on the hill of Chris Dunn. I argue with Bulls fans that are my friends all the time who think that Chris Dunn is not good, that he is good, and I will die on that hill. But the Bulls in general have just been fun to watch. And I think Laurie Marketing, along with, you know, Chris Dunn and Zach Levine coming back and scoring like 15, 18 points in like 20 in his 20 minute limit restriction, all have just been fun to watch. To clarify, I assume you mean the Bulls have been fun to watch since they started three and twenty. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Since they start, since they started four and twenty. Yes, I forgot to mention that part. Uh, we don't talk about that part of the season. <laughs> nope. No need to talk about that part of the season. <laughs> Let's move on to sixth man of the year, which honestly should just be the Lou Williams Award at this point. I don't like this award. <laughs> honestly, fair enough, but Lou Williams has been worth talking about this yeah. award. He's averaging 23.3 points a game, 31.5 points a game in January. He's averaging five assists, too. He's creating for other players more than he ever has before. He's averaging career highs in points per game, assists per game, and true shooting percentage. And he's already won a six-man-of-the-year award. So, honestly, this list is Lou Williams, and then if there's anybody else you want to think about as an honorable mention, but I don't think anyone else is really worth talking about for this award other than Lou Williams, who somehow has kept this Clippers team that should have been absolutely dead at this point in the season in the playoff race, almost single-handedly with Blake Griffin missing significant time due to injury, with Milos Teodosic missing almost the whole season, with Patrick Beverly missing almost the whole season, with Daniel Gallinari missing almost the whole season. It's basically been the Lou Williams show, and it's been incredible to watch. Yeah, he has a obviously he has a special place in my heart because he was part of the 76ers, and I won't forget 
the game-winning shot he hit over the Heat, the game-winning three in the twenty eleven in the shortened lockout season playoffs. It was basically to keep us from being swept. But that shot is still <laughs> that shot is still ingrained in my memory. The, the dude just knows how to score, and not only that, he's just doing it at a higher rate. And like you said, he's kept this team afloat. And it was basically just cathartic watching him drop 50 on the Warriors because Lou Williams has low-key always been one of my favorite players to watch just because I watched him a lot you know in the early days in Philadelphia he was kind of Allen Iverson's you know little brother so to speak when he first came into the league as a rookie and so I've always rooted for Lou Williams and he should definitely there's no (laughs) I can't even think of an honorable mention to be in the sixth man conversation just because Lou Williams has locked it up but I don't like this award too much anyway so since you don't like this award too much let's move on and talk about yes (laughs) and talk about coach of the year and I want to start off with a little rant the San Antonio Spurs are currently 30 and 16 after their win today. They are third in the Western Conference and they have the fifth best record in basketball. Kawhi Leonard, the only person on the team who made an all-star team last year, has played nine games. Nine total. He was the driving force of their offense. He was the driving force of their defense. And yet, Somehow, once again, the Spurs are one of the best teams in basketball, being led by LaMarcus Aldridge, who requested a trade in the offseason. Let's just keep that in mind. Greg Popovich has won three Coach of the Year awards during his coaching career, his 22-year coaching career, and that is an absolute crime. And the other two coaches that we both have on this list have both done incredible coaching jobs, and I don't want to take away from them at all. But the Spurs should be a 500 team. They really should. They have no one on the team who was an all-star last year other than, again, the nine games played by their best player. And quite frankly, Greg Popovich should have won, in my mind, at least seven or eight of these awards. The fact that he's only won three of them is just insane to me, and he should win it this year no matter how well the Celtics do. Well, you're making this tough on me because I still have Brad Stevens um, first, just because just because they're still they have the sec they still have the second best record in the NBA, and they lost their best player um, five minutes into the season, and the fact that Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are. Jalen Brown's 20 and Jason Tatum's 19 and they're in the starting lineup for the second best record in the NBA and he is able to cobble together this bench and they have good bench players but the fact that he has the fact that he has led this team to this record to this point with all the circumstances going against him and having only four returning players from last year from last year's Eastern Conference finalist on the team this year I still have to give him the slight edge over pop, but I completely get what you're saying. I completely get the, the crux of your rant. Greg Popovich is the greatest coach of all time. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any of it. I don't want to hear Phil Jackson or Red Auerbach. All great coaches, by the way. Greg Popovich is the greatest coach of all time. But I, I will say the gap has closed on Stevens because earlier in the year, I thought Stevens was going to run away with the award, much like with the award, much like Ben Simmons is running away with the rookie of the year award. But I think the circumstances that have just kept being thrown at pop with Kawhi Leonard's quad injury, and now he's out indefinitely with a shoulder injury. And like you said, LaMarcus Aldridge being traded, um, or not being traded, requesting for a trade and, um, over the summer and Popovich, you know, relenting and deciding to hear out LaMarcus Aldridge. That's what great coaches do. They don't be stubborn and say, no, you're doing this my way. He listened to LaMarcus Aldridge and what he had to say in this well-reported powwow that they had over the summer. And they were able to work it out. And LaMarcus Aldridge is playing like an all-star again. You have Davis Bertans, um, Bren Forbes, um, Patty Mills, like, 
these are not household names and yet they are still 30 and 16 as I'm looking at the standings right now. But I still have to give the edge to Stevens. I have to ask you though, what was the, I guess what was the, cause you had Stevens on your, on the quarter awards pod. So I'm wondering, I guess what changed for you um, to have pop ahead of Stevens. The Celtics have slowed down a little bit since then and the Spurs haven't. And my counter to your previous argument, the top five players in minutes played per game on the Celtics Kyrie Irving, Al Horford, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart. The top five for the Spurs, LaMarcus Aldridge, then Kyle Anderson, Danny Green, Pau Gasol, and Patty Mills. If you were to do a draft between the players on those two teams, and obviously we're excluding Gordon Hayward for the Celtics and Kawhi for the Spurs, I think you would pick the first four of those Celtics before every single one of those Spurs other than LaMarcus. And I think most people would take Kyrie and Al Horford before they took LaMarcus anyway. I mean, the talent gap between those two rosters, I think is a lot larger than the four and a half, five game difference between the two teams in the standings. You're you're really about to make me change my pick like mid pod. <laughs> uh, I, uh, yeah, you know what? You're probably right. Pop probably should be number one right now, just because of all the circumstances that he has. Wow, you just put you really just did a compelling argument there. Um, yeah, I guess I have to. Sw- I'm, you know what? I'm switching. Uh, I'm gonna have Pop first and Brad Stevens second. Just, just you know, looking at the roster right now and. Um, you know, thinking about that draft question you posed, I you're probably right. I would take a lot of the Celtics over the Spurs. Um, yeah, I'm changing my pick. <laughs> I I feel so victorious right now. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> we do have to talk about the third guy on the list, but we, no, we we're not going to end the pod right now. We got to talk about the third guy on the list. Even though I kind of want to just end the pod right there <laughs> with you saying you switch your pick, but. <laughs> Number three on the list for both of us, Eric Spolstra, who I think has a pretty similar argument to Greg Popovich. The Heat are currently fourth in the Eastern Conference. They're a game behind Cleveland. And Hassan Whiteside has missed just under half of the team's games. Deion Waiters didn't really look right, even when he did play this season. And now he's out for the rest of the year with an ankle injury. Chris Bosch is retired, and yet the Heat are 25 and 18 and fourth in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, and, you know, like you said, Hassan Whiteside hasn't played that much. And really in the closing lineups lately, as this Heat, as this uh, Heat team has gone, I'm looking at it right now, they have, they are 10 and three in their last uh, 13 games. And, They've propelled themselves to, you know, like you said, fourth in the East. Hassan Whiteside really hasn't been a part of the crunch time lineups. They have much rather gone with Kelly Olynyk at center and James Johnson as the, the the James Johnson transformation is incredible. Somehow just being the point forward of everything, but the James Johnson at four and just these lineups that Spolstra has constantly tinkered with has finally started to work. And by the way, guys, read Zach Lowe's incredible piece on the Miami Heat. It's the heat te- this uh heat team i had them pegged as one of the teams that i was going to watch a lot this season because i like a lot of their players they don't necessarily have a star or anything but they have a lot of good players who do a lot of good things and i by the way i love i've loved bam Adebayo in the draft and i love bam Adebayo now <laughs> he is improved as a passer he is improved defensively uh this heat team is just really they, they're really well coached and it's just an example like if play if fans want to know what it what uh qualities you need to have to be a good coach i would watch i would tell them to watch this heat team because not only do they play hard um they defend well. They run really crisp plays. They run different types of offenses for different lineups, especially when Hassan Whiteside is on the court or off the court. That's dependent on that. But this Heat team is really fun to watch. And now that they have finally started to get it going and start playing like the thirty, the team that went 30-11 and 11 the second half of last season, um, watch out for this Heat team because I think they're on pace. I think they're going to win 50 games this year. It wouldn't shock me. 
All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Uh, nope. That's that's about it. You got got to get me on for a uh, all Sixers podcast. I have a lot of stuff to get off my chest. <laughs> the hashtag Sixers Pod isn't enough to get off your chest. Nope. Nope. It's not. I always ha- I have a lot. To, I have a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to do that soon. But in the meantime, he is Jordan Christmas. You can find him on Twitter at Sports Talk XMAS. You can find his written work on the hashtag basketball website. And you can find his other podcasting work on the hashtag Sixers podcast. You can find my written work on the hashtag basketball website as well. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And of course, If you have been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 